you would, grab your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. <clears throat> As you're turning there, let me say that if you are one of our guests, we are glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. And we hope that you will stick around after services. Let us get to know you and you get to know us just a bit better. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the true and living God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let us pray. Indeed, Lord God, you are one who dwells in darkness, even as you are light. We pray, Father, that as we come to Mount Sinai this morning, that you would use your law to convict us and your gospel to comfort us. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. I've never spent Christmas in the mountains. Typically, around this time of the year, our family does go up to the mountains just to play in the snow. Snow. Anybody? 
White Christmas, mm, Bing Crosby, Danny Kay, Vera Ellen, Rosemary Clooney, nothing? Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, this year, congregationally, we are going to spend Christmas in the mountains, but not to play in the snow. There are mountains all over the Bible, a veritable mountain range, as it were, uh, is all throughout your Bible. And so during the month of December, as we approach uh, Christmas, and in, lieu, or in light of the Christmas season, we want to visit four mountains that are in Scripture in order to see who God is in order to see who Christ is, and in order to understand the gospel that our God has given us in Christ Jesus. Our first stop is the impressive spectacle, which is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is our first stop. This is a mountain, as we read, of lightning and thunder. It is a mountain of smoke and fire. It is a mountain of loud trumpets and thick darkness. Both Exodus 20 and Exodus 19 accentuate these various aspects of this smoking, shaking mountain in the desert, Mount Sinai. Why is Mount Sinai such an impressive spectacle? It's because the very presence of God has descended from heaven onto this mountain. Why is that? What is God doing here? God is giving His law to His people, but also He is entering into covenant with His people. And as He enters into covenant with His people, He is giving them His law, His good, holy, spiritual law. You see, that's, that's the, the purpose of Mount Sinai. One of God's purposes is in giving His law. Well, why does He give His law? I mean, isn't it true that the, even the Gentiles who don't have the law, they don't have Mount Sinai in their history, they still do what the law requires, demonstrating that the law is written on the heart. So, why is it that He is doing this? Well, let's dig just briefly into the context of Exodus, especially Exodus 20. Just a few chapters earlier, you had the Exodus. And that impressive spectacle, that miracle that God worked in order to deliver His people from Egypt, that is still fresh on their minds. It's been merely three months since that happened. And now, here in chapters 19 all the way to chapter 24 in Exodus, God is entering into covenant with the people He has redeemed from slavery. Israel and Yahweh are going to be in relationship. And Israel will render obedience to God. They will keep His law, and they will also show covenant loyalty. They will obey the voice of God, and they will keep His covenant. That's what the text says back in 19 and verse 5 of Exodus. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. If, if the earth is like a ring, a gold ring on the hand of God, 
Israel would be the crown jewel. Don't misunderstand. He owns all of creation. It's all His. But Israel is that special possession. By the way, just as a little aside here, when you get to, say, 1 Peter, Peter says, but the church, the church is the special possession, that we are the crown jewel on that gold band of the ring that God has on His hand, which is the whole earth. Well, Yahweh is also going to be their king. He says that, uh, verse 6 of Exodus 19, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Let's focus on kingdom for just a moment. If Israel is going to be this kingdom, then of course that means Yahweh is going to be King Yahweh. And of course he, as king, will determine how his people ought to live. But then there is also that you will be a kingdom of priests. And there's a, a two-fold function, a two-fold responsibility of Israel as a kingdom of priests. Number one, they will be in God's presence. And what that means is they will be holy. See, that's what a priest is. A priest is holy in the presence of God. But then second, part of their function is also to bring the nations into the presence of God. That's part of their function. That's what a priest does. And even they do that representatively. The, the high priest, when he would go in to the presence of God, into the tabernacle and then into the temple, he'd have a gold plate on his chest with precious jewels and also the names of the tribes written. He was representing the, 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 the nation of Israel, the people of God in that. So at Mount Sinai, God is giving His law. Well, the question then becomes, well, why is this significant? The significance of the law is that it reveals the character of God. This is something we talked about during our Bible class this morning, about the law revealing the righteous, holy character of God. But to understand that, you must first of all recognize the divine origin of the law. Notice we read verse 1, Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words. There's a parallel account. It's years later, right before the people are about to go into the land. And you have Deuteronomy, the second telling of the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, you have a list, once again, of the Ten Commandments. But then at the end uh, of, of those, you have 5.22 of Deuteronomy, which says, Moses says, These words Yahweh spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, the thick darkness, with a loud voice. And he added no more. Notice two things here. First of all, we see the law came from God. The law is of divine origin. And perhaps there is no fact concerning the Ten Commandments that is more significant than this. It is not a human invention. Humans didn't think it up. It's not a creation and invention of humans. It is given by God. God spoke all these words. God gave you His law. That's the emphasis. So the law has its origin in God Himself. But then also... We see here the completeness of the law. God spoke all these words. And then remember we read Deuteronomy 5.22. He added no more. That is the completeness. He gave, God gave all he wanted to give in that. 
And so the most significant thing about the Ten Commandments is they come from God, and He's given us all that He desires to give. And since God is the most significant thing about the Ten Commandments, guess what? No wonder it starts with Him. Even before you get commandment one, no other gods before me, you have this in verse 2, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's a reminder of who God is. Verses 3 through 17 in Exodus 20, you have the content. Again, God spoke all these words. And in fact, that's the way that the, the Ten Commandments are typically talked about in the first five books of uh, the Bible. They are the ten words, the words of the covenant, the ten words, literally. Usually that gets translated as ten commandments. Exodus 34, 28 is an example of that. And especially as you get deeper into these, starting with, oh, number six and following, they're stated in the negative. They're, they're, they state in the negative uh, the commandment, so you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. But even though they're stated negatively, each command can also be interpreted positively. And so, you shall not murder. Well, that insists on the right of every person to their own life. You shall not commit adultery. That is speaking to the right of every person to have their own home. You shall not steal. That's insisting on the right of every person to their own property. And you shall not bear false witness that is protecting the right of every person to their own reputation. And, and more could be said about that, but this is the content of the law. It's very straightforward, uh, and we see, of course, with Jesus when He comes on the scene. We'll talk about this next week when we come to the Sermon on the Mount. But these commandments are rich with application, and, and Jesus will show us that next week. Come with me to Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5. I want you to see that there is the promise of the law. In the law, there is a promise to those who keep the law. Leviticus 18 and verse 5 says, and this is God Himself, Yahweh speaking to Moses, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. The promise is simple. You keep the law, it means life. You keep the law, you will live. The just shall live by faith. Well, the one who is just is just because he or she has kept the law perfectly. And no wonder they live. You have this promise here that if you do keep and obey the statutes and rules of Yahweh, you will live. course, we know. No sooner is the law given. People of Israel, I mean, Moses isn't even down the mountain yet, and they're already breaking the first two. You shall have no other gods before me. Behold your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Don't make anything that looks like me. Notice how it's a golden calf. Indeed, the history of Israel is one where you see, writ large, that the good that they desire to do, they don't do that. And the evil they don't desire to do, that's the very thing that they do. And the curse of death for sin hangs over them. 
just as it hangs over us. <laughs> it's very easy to look back on the Israelites and look down on them. Ah, oh, those foolish Israelites. If I had been there, you'd been there, you'd been right in the mix of the mess. Because that's the nature of the law, is it convicts. It tells us we have not kept the law perfectly. No one has kept the law perfectly. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none who do good, no, not one. There is none who is righteous, no, not one. We lie. We harbor lust in our hearts. We are angry with others, which Jesus will tell us next week. That's tantamount to murder. In short, we sin. Many of you are in the same boat that our family's been in for the last month. You probably still hear it in my voice. I think we're on the downhill of this, but we've been sick. Many of you, you know you've, you've been sick. There's many who aren't here because they're sick. I came across uh, a, a quote uh, earlier this week uh, which says that the smallest sin is worse than the greatest sickness. The smallest sin is worse than the greatest sickness. You know why that is? The worst sickness, all it can lead to ultimately is death. You die physically. But the smallest sin, that will end not in physical but in spiritual death, the second death, eternity away from God. The smallest sin left unrepentant of will condemn a soul to eternity away from the presence of God. This is why the smallest sin is worse than the worst sickness. It's greater than the worst sickness. This is the nature of sin. And it is the law functioning properly that shows us this very thing. And don't get me wrong. We need to emphasize here that the law, it is a good thing. That the temptation is to look at the law as though it is defective. That there's something wrong with the law. That it's, uh, it's too strict. And so what ends up happening is, what can happen is, one engages in trying to maybe help God along, maybe help the law along. And I think there's one practice which is quickly becoming an American pastime, which is the redefinition of law and the redrawing of boundaries. We don't like what God has said. And so, because we don't like how God has defined something, well, we'll, we'll just change it. And all of it is an attempt to uh, soothe our conscience. So we redefine marriage and gender and sex and murder. Again, all in attempts to soothe our conscience, which is afflicted. But to distort God's law or to outright play at God defining good and evil, is itself evil. In Romans chapter 7, Paul emphasizes the goodness of the law. And he does this in verses 12 through 16. Romans 7, beginning in verse 12. 
So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, and I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. You see how many times he emphasized? The law is good. The law is holy. It's righteous. It is spiritual. And Paul is doing this because even some, even some Christians can get the wrong idea about the law. We get the idea that, well, since we're not under the law, the law is not applicable to us today, or that it's somehow bad. Paul is at pains to emphasize here that you must not lose sight, that the law is holy, it is righteous, it is good, it is spiritual. I agree with the law that it is good. It's not a bad thing. In fact, this whole discussion began with a question back in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Is the law sinful? His answer is very strong. By no means. Old King James says, God forbid. And Paul's at pains to remind these Christians and to remind us. Law is not a bad thing in and of itself. The ten words are holy and good and righteous because they come from a holy, good, righteous God. And they do reveal His character. The law intends the best for people. It intends to give life. Nothing wrong with the law. The problem is with the people. God finds fault with them, the writer of Hebrews says. Um, even here in uh, the book of Romans in chapter 8, he says in verse 3, what God, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You want to know what's wrong with the world? Look no further than look in the mirror, right? It starts right here with me and the flesh and my own fallenness. Indeed, we see the, the good influence of the law every time you read the New Testament. Even a cursory reading of the New Testament reveals that the law and the prophets, they continued to be authoritative for the early church. I mean, you think about it. The, the first few decades of the early church, what was their Bible? It was the Old Testament. It was the Hebrew Scriptures. I mean, Paul, he won't write a letter until the late 40s at the earliest. And, of course, the New Testament won't be completed until John writes the Revelation. And so they lean into the Old Testament. Where'd they get that model from? Jesus. When he's in conversation with the religious authorities of his day, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 31, he says, have you not read what was said to you by God? And then he quotes from Exodus 3 and verse 6. He quotes from the law to make his point. You see, if we deny or discount the law, then we deny and discount the interpretive model of Jesus because he leaned upon the law. Paul and the apostles, they quote extensively from the Old Testament, verse after verse after verse, uh, repeatedly from the Hebrew Bible they're quoting. One great example is in Hebrews chapter 3, 
where the writer there says, the Holy Spirit says, and it's in the present tense. And yet he quotes from Psalm 95, which was written centuries before. See, that's the nature of this book. It's unlike any other book. It is God-breathed, God-given, and the Holy Spirit still says, still speaks through it. Specifically to the Ten Commandments. Remember when Paul wants to talk about proper relationships in the home, between the husband, wife, children, with the family? What is it he quotes from when he's exhorting children to obey their parents in the Lord for this is right? Those are the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. This is uh, the first commandment with a promise. It will go well with you and you'll live long in the land, he says. This is Ephesians 6, verses 1 and 2. We cannot, as some popular contemporary preachers and theologians have postulated here recently, we cannot unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Yet, as we've been talking about, the law functioning properly shows us the reality of sin and the very real consequences of sin. John read for us earlier from Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. I invite you to turn there. And I want us to see here what Paul says about the curse of the law and the cross of Christ. And one of the things that I hope will be evident here is he quotes four Old Testament verses to make his point. He pulls from the Hebrew Scriptures to make his point about the law, the curse of the law, and the cross of Christ. We see here that all who rely, verse 10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by these things written in the book of the law and do them. We see here this curse that has fallen upon humanity because we were under the curse because we don't keep the law perfectly. We can't keep the law. But why did God send Christ into the world? Jesus himself says, Matthew 5 and verse 17, I didn't come to abolish the law, he says. I came to fulfill it, Jesus says. Jesus came to do what we can't do. Praise be to God that in Christ, Christ, He has kept the law perfectly. He did what we could not do in keeping the law of God perfectly. He perfectly fulfills the whole Old Testament perfectly. All of the moral laws, all of the civil laws, all of the ceremonial laws, they have all been fulfilled completely in the life and the death of Christ. So again, Christ did what we could not do. Obey God perfectly. You couldn't obey God perfectly. You couldn't obey God perfectly. You couldn't obey God perfectly. I couldn't obey God perfectly. But Christ did. His sinless life is the full obedience, the perfect keeping of the law that we couldn't do and that we were in desperate need of. And then it is His perfect obedience, His righteousness, that is then credited to us when we are justified. We keep reading here in Galatians 3, 
And we notice verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We broke the law due to our sin. And the penalty for that is death. The curse is death. You sin, you die. We sin, we die. The curse is upon us because of our sin. The punishment that is due us for our law-breaking, which ought to be ours, guess what? Christ has taken that. He took it upon Himself on the cross. When you see Christ on the cross, you are seeing one who is dying in your place, taking the penalty and punishment for your sins and for mine. See, in the cross, Christ became a curse for us. Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy 21 and the rest of verse 13. He says, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The tree there is the cross. In the cross, Christ is redeeming us. The idea of redemption, He is paying the price to purchase us back from slavery to sin, death, hell, and the grave. That's the idea of redemption. It is a rescue by ransom. And the ransom has been paid. The transaction has made. We sing about that, don't we? And the transaction so quickly was made, right? That's, that's what happened on the cross for us. It is Christ redeeming us. And He is redeeming us from the curse, verse 13 says. Again, because we broke God's holy law, we're under the curse. But then it says here that Jesus, He became a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse, having become a curse for us. There are two perspectives that we need to recognize here. The one is that it is the eternal counsel and will of God that Christ was sent to fulfill when He went to the cross and became a curse for us. Indeed, we see it was written way back in, with Moses in Deuteronomy. Over a millennium before Jesus ever walked the planet, it was predicted. Why is that? Because all the way from eternity, there was a cross in the mind of God. And then second, Christ, He came willingly, freely, and He gave Himself over to become a curse on our account. Not only in hanging on the cross, bad as that is, he is becoming a curse. He is cursed in that. That's what the law says. Curses everyone who's hanged on a tree. But also in taking our sins upon himself, he's accursed. God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. It's what Isaiah sees in Isaiah 53 and verse 6 that Yahweh God laid on him the iniquity of us all. All your sin, my brothers, my sisters, was laid upon Christ and he willingly and freely took that upon himself so that we would be set free from the curse through his becoming a curse for us. Notice that. Notice he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, on our behalf. 
We slaves of sin. We prisoners of sin. We who loved our sin. Jesus, through His death, He has set us free. And now, now we, how can we love sin? When we look upon Christ and the beauty of the gospel, what He has done, the links God has gone to in order to bring us righteousness. How can we drink once again from the cup of poison? It is our curse that Christ bears on the cross. And the curse is lifted from us because of Jesus on the cross. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. And this is the significance of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where God gave His law. It is at Mount Sinai that we are confronted with the holiness of God and the holiness of His law. But at the same time, it is at Mount Sinai that we are confronted with our own inability to perfectly keep the law of God. But it is Moses on Mount Sinai that points us to a greater than Moses. The Lord Jesus Christ, what He has done. Indeed, He's done what we cannot do. He has kept the law perfectly for us, and He has redeemed us from the curse of the law on the cross. Christ becomes cursed by God so that we might become the redeemed of God. Let's commit this to prayer. Lord God, we are so grateful for what you have done in Christ Jesus. You have freed us from the curse of death, from the curse of the law, And we rejoice and give you thanks for that. As we stand at the foot of Mount Sinai and we see the awful terror that it inspired in your people, we too tremble before your law knowing we've not kept it. But that points us to Jesus. And in the gospel we see that you have laid our sins on him We are freed from all of our sins to live for you. Help us, Father, by your Spirit within us to do just that, to live for you, not just Sunday morning, Tuesday morning, Thursday afternoon, and Saturday evening, every day, Father. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.